I'm Daniel Libet. This is the NM Fishbowl Podcast. It's Monday, December 3rd, 2018. Transparency, transparency. The buzzword that sounds so nice, public officials like to say it twice and rarely then follow it. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about the T word and the amount of lip service paid to it in the state of New Mexico. I couldn't think of a more sincere and articulate guest to address this topic than journalist Jeff Proctor, who actually does give a shit about transparency and has a career's worth of work to prove it. Proctor currently covers criminal justice for the nonprofit news outfit New Mexico In Depth, in addition to serving as a contributing editor at the Santa Fe Reporter. Previously, he worked as an investigative reporter and producer at KRQE-TV, and before that he spent a decade writing about the courts for the Albuquerque Journal, where his coverage of excessive force incidents in the Albuquerque Police Department prompted a Justice Department review of APD. Proctor is one of the state's most passionate transparency advocates and has been honored for those efforts with the William S. Dixon First Amendment Freedom Award from the New Mexico Foundation for Open Government. Last summer, Proctor filed a lawsuit against Governor Susana Martinez's administration over its repeated refusal to turn over bills and invoices showing what her outside lawyer Paul Kennedy charged state taxpayers to represent Martinez in various cases. In what I believe is the podcast's first on-air scoop, Proctor gives an important update to the status of that litigation. Beyond that, we both discuss our experience reporting on Martinez's time in office, which began with her 2010 campaign promise to have a transparent and open administration and is now winding down to a final inglorious month. But you just can't hope to have transparent government without robust journalism outfits holding feet to the fire which is why Proctor and I spend a not insignificant amount of time discussing our issues with the Albuquerque Journal, New Mexico's paper of record, and the self-evident strain of its masthead's cowardliness, which we believe has palsied its public service responsibilities. I should warn you that there is even a little more righteous indignation and casual swearing in this episode than in previous ones. But when you're talking about the failures of and impediments to transparency, how the fuck aren't you going to cuss a little bit? And so, with apologies for going blue, and without further ado, I give you Jeff Proctor. Jeff Proctor, welcome to the NM Fishbowl Podcast. I'm incredibly thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I there's there's so many things I want to get to. I'm 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 going to try to resist the urge to uh, to tackle all of them so we can go deeply on some of them. Um, but here we are at the end of 2018, which means we have about a month left of Governor Susana Martinez's uh, tenure. Um, you have written a lot about Governor Martinez. You have been in litigation. Um, a couple of times over public records issues with the Martinez administration. I would love your, your coda, um, such as it is, on, on, on sort of where, where she's ending up compared to where you thought politically and 
public perception wise she might end up um let's say you know at the start of her time as governor yeah that's a really interesting question i um i i think <laughs> i think i'm disappointed <laughs> to some degree and also unsurprised which are two pretty common emotions for me when it comes to evaluating the tenures of elected and appointed officials in the state of New Mexico. Um, I certainly remember um, her campaign uh, against Diane Dennis when she ran the first time and won the governorship. Um, the, the, what, what later became a, a catchphrase was just then being popularized. And one of the things that she frequently said on the campaign trail when she was running against Diane Dennish was, um, I pledge that mine will be the most transparent administration in New Mexico history. Um, now, of course, that ended up being a campaign pledge that we also heard um, from the mayor of Albuquerque who had the same political advisor as Governor Martinez. And frankly, um, Barack Obama uh, had begun to use it um, during the time that he was running for his first term and early on in his first term. That phrase to me, um, as you know, and, and some of your listeners might know, transparency is one of the issues that is most important and close to my heart as a journalist and um, a person who lives and um, pays taxes in the state of New Mexico. So it was, it, there was a level of cautious refreshment um, when I saw Governor Martinez, well, then candidate Martinez, put that issue front and center, I thought that was something that um, I hadn't seen a whole lot of um, in, uh, in, in high office campaigns in the state of New Mexico. But in terms of the CODA, uh, it, it, it really and truly has been, um, it, it couldn't have been more diametrically opposed in the final analysis in terms of the Martinez administration's commitment to transparency, if that had been their stated goal. Um, we've seen one lawsuit after the next, um, most of, uh, of, of this litigation against the Martinez administration over public records um, has resulted in a favorable ruling or a favorable settlement for the plaintiffs. Um, the uh, Sunshine Portal, which if your listeners aren't familiar with that, was supposed to be this terrific innovation and in dumping a whole bunch of public records onto um, a, big, a big database on the governor's website that would save people the hassle of having to file public records requests um, has been an abject failure. Uh, I, I think it's, it's an absolute disaster. It's untrustworthy. I don't know a single journalist in the state who uses it as a single source to publish information um, about uh, the Martinez administration. And in the end, I feel like this became a really insular administration um, that just didn't really have a terrific interest in a public and transparent and open dialogue with the citizens of New Mexico who may have even had the slightest disagreements philosophically with the way they tried to govern the state. I want to do something right now that I almost never do, which is I want to put myself in the shoes of those who I find to obstruct um, the public in its right to know. Because as you, po you pointed out, you know, in just the example there, 
Um, so Barry Martinez, Barack Obama. Um, I suppose Barry and Martinez were sort of running off of the same political apparatus, but Obama was not. And yet here we find repeatedly, and far more than just a handful of examples, public officials who make a claim of wanting to be open government um, advocates or at least responsive to the, uh, to the ideals of open government just almost categorically always failing at that. And so I'm, I'm trying to kind of think through if this is merely a cynical claim people make that they have no intention of keeping up um, because it's a, it's a good sounding word um, that is not terribly well understood in its practice by the citizenry of what transparency should look like. Um, is, it, I mean, is, it, is it more difficult than, let's say, I'd be inclined to give people in, in either the positions of running a public institution or in the positions of being an elected official to be transparent um, in terms of access to records and openness to reporters and and all the rest that comes with it is it is it just something that's always too difficult to live up to um or or is or is it just a cynical thing that so many people um claim to be interested in when they when they weren't, weren't interested in the first place i want to take that in two parts i think that's a really <clears throat> well thought out frame to have this conversation and in, in terms of trying to get at the why do they end up being so opaque or in other instances downright covered by a thick um, you know blackout curtain from a Vegas hotel room right so th these are the two parts I want to take that in the word itself transparency I think is one of those words in American political discourse civic discourse um, and political campaigning that has lost its meaning. Um, it, it just doesn't, it, 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 it's, it, it's become a buzzword. Um, like so many other words and phrases, I could rattle off a dozen of them for you right now, but I think that the, the word transparency has, I, I think it, it tests well when people like political consultants and speech writers and communications directors go and do focus groups and things like that. People like the word. It's a feel-good word. Transparency. Yes, I'm for that. Whether I know what it really means or entails or not, I'm for it. So it's there has been a cynicism in removing the meaning from that word. And that's offensive to me as the kind of journalist I am and the sort of citizen that I hope to be. The other part I would like to say, um, and, and this pertains to the second part of the question, is it just that difficult? I Here's my take on that. I think this is a, a matter of um, priorities. This is a matter of, uh, in, in, in many bureaucracies, or whether they happen to be state agencies, uh, police departments, um, municipalities, uh, county clerk's offices, or whatever a, a public entity you want to come up with, it's a matter of prioritizing actual transparency. And here's what I mean if, you, if you'd allow me to, to get in the weeds just a bit. Um, we all know, and I think your listeners will probably be familiar with the job title records custodian. 
right? That's the person who you actually send the public records request to, who's responsible for processing it and getting those records to you in a timely fashion. Here in New Mexico, um, in the overwhelming majority of instances, the people who are designated as records custodians for these various public entities, it's not their only job. They're doing numerous other jobs and the public records processing part is sort of a side dish to the rest of the job that they're doing for the government entity, right? So it's, but what, what ends up happening as a result of that is it becomes a headache. Um, public records requests become a headache for these people. It's just more work for these people. Um, even the ones who actually believe in the sort of high-minded ideals of open government and transparency. So there hasn't been, at least in my experience, and this is getting worse and worse, frankly, um, there hasn't been a commitment to actually spending a little bit of money. Um, I know that's anathema to a lot of folks who think about the financial picture in a poor state like New Mexico to um, really formalizing this. And look, maybe we can get into um, the Attorney General here, Hector Balderas, who's responsible for enforcing our public records laws um, and some of the problems that I've had with, with his um, uh, uh, execution of those duties. But he does make some interesting points in some of the stories I've written and interviews I've had with him. He would like for the records custodian position to be formalized, professionalized, training required, a certificate given by the state to the person whose job it is to be the records custodian, and that is that person's only job. It's their only job to process the public records requests, to be familiar with our sunshine laws, to be able to go back and forth with the legal department of whatever the public entity may be, to decide whether there should be redactions or whether the full record should be released. But I, I don't I do not believe that our public records laws are being abused. I don't believe they're out of control. I know there's a school of thought in New Mexico that, you know, these people are just overwhelmed and there are too many of these public records requests. But to me, it really is a matter of prioritizing transparency, putting your money where your mouth is, and putting professionals in charge of doing the day-to-day -day business of making sure that the public, journalists, and whoever would like it has, as, as our statute says, the most possible access to the workings of its government. Right. I mean, and this is always the, this is always the tension is, you know, th these laws, particularly this law in New Mexico, public records laws across the country, have no meaning if they're not going to actually be executed, if people are not going to make the requests, and if if the uh, if the institutions or the agencies are not going to be required to respond to those requests, then it's just then it really is just an ivory tower, thumb sucking game, um, in terms of open government. One of the uh, to that point, um, there's certainly the act of of making the requests and then and then disseminating the information, the important information that's found. But I think a, an equally important part is is the is the litigation aspect of this um you know it would be nice if everybody just complied faithfully 
um, with every request that was ever made, but that just simply doesn't happen. And, and most of us who make requests don't exactly know what information we're looking for. We know what kind of information we'd be, be interested in, but we're at the mercy uh, of, the, of the source that we're requesting the information from to hand it over, even if they could reasonably expect that, e that we wouldn't know um, what we're missing if they don't tell us what, what they're missing. And, and so to, to that extent, you have filed a, um, you filed a lawsuit against Governor Martinez's administration years ago, long before I even knew what the Inspection of Public Records Act was, um, over the billings that her personal attorney, Paul Kennedy, a well-known lawyer and former jurist in New Mexico, um, had been charging her, and by her I mean the New Mexico taxpayers, over work that he had done for Martinez while she was in office. Can you tell me about that lawsuit, and can you tell me where it stands now? Because as I understand it, it has, it has not been resolved yet. Yeah, I, I, there, are, there are, I can talk to you, yes, I can talk to you about the case. And I think it's important to provide a little context first. Mr. Kennedy is an incredibly well-known um, attorney, criminal defense, civil rights, all different types of law. He's practiced through the, the, the course of his career. He's an incredibly shrewd attorney. He's a very smart man. Um, and he has done a wide range of work over the course of his career. He's a conservative guy. At the same time, I've watched him um, as contract counsel for the ACLU um, go in and argue against an ordinance in the city of Albuquerque in which former mayor Marty Chavez tried to pass an ordinance in which the police could steal and sell your car the first time you were arrested on suspicion of DWI. So Paul has this he, he has this really sort of wide base of legal experience. He's been around a, a hundred years. He's twice been appointed to the state Supreme Court, once by Gary Johnson, the other time by Susana Martinez. He lost in competitive elections both times afterwards. The work that he has done for the Martinez administration, and this is where I'll be a little bit more critical of Paul, um, there's some irony in all of this, and I'll, I'll circle back to that eventually. A number of the cases that he has been contract counsel for the Martinez administration have been these public records lawsuits. She has hired him and his firm to help her hide public records when she gets sued under our state's sunshine laws. So there's there's a little bit of irony sort of in that. And for me, there are all a whole host of other types of cases in which he's represented her, including what I would consider some of the biggest scandals of the Martinez administration. As an example of that, um, there, 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 a case was brought in which employees of the Human Services Division were being ordered by their superiors to add assets to emergency food stamp applications for people so that they couldn't get the food stamps. So in other words, it's incredibly cynical, right? Like, we're going to make it look like you don't qualify for emergency food benefits by adding assets to your applications. Kennedy represented the Martinez administration in that case. Really, really, really cynical kind of government move. So he'd done this kind of wide range of what some people would consider dirty work for the administration. What I wanted to know was, how much has that cost me? 
and you, dear reader, for the various publications that I write for. So I began to make a series of public records requests for his billing records, invoices, anything that would actually indicate to the taxpayer and to our readers um, how much money has this guy actually made in representing the governor in these really controversial cases. Um, and one quick aside, I'd love to have been able to go into the Sunshine Portal and simply been able to see all of the contracts that he had gotten and how much money he'd actually been paid. But of course, the Sunshine Portal is um, for fans of uh, the old David Bowie movie, Labyrinth, the bog of eternal stench when it comes to actually being able to find things. So no success with the Sunshine Portal. I make these public records requests. I'm denied. I'm first denied um, based on what uh, um, they claimed, the administration claimed, was attorney-client privilege. And, you know, I sort of shot back at them like, I'm not interested in the privileged communications on legal strategy. I just want to know how much taxpayer money Mr. Kennedy has received to represent the governor. Um, they didn't buy that, so I, 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 for once in my life, was not the sort of shouting at the rain problem child, and I went through the formal process. I filed um, a complaint with the Attorney General's Office Open Government Division. They ruled in my favor and said, nah, you got to give Proctor the records. So at that point, the administration shifted its reason for not providing the records and said, we can't give uh, Mr. Proctor these records because of um, an arcane statute uh, that, that falls under the risk management division that says we can't disclose payments or settlements or any of that kind of stuff for 180 days um, after they're uh, um, settled. The attorney general didn't buy that either. The Martinez administration still didn't want to cough up the records, so I filed suit. Litigation went on for, geez, Dan, um, God, it must have been a year and a half, something like that. Maybe two years the litigation went on, back and forth. Same uh, law firm, by the way, um, that helped me in this case, uh, that, that represented you in your uh, suit against the university and the UNM Foundation as you were trying to, to try to get to the bottom of taxpayer money and how it was being spent. Um, so the litigation went back and forth. I can say now that that litigation has settled um, I can't say for how much. I can't say how much um, uh, my attorney's fees uh, um, were, were granted in the case, and that's because of that risk management statute. But what I can say is that in the very near future, I am going to be writing and publishing a story based on documents that I obtained as a result of that litigation. I'm going to be able to give the public a little more clear picture and a little more precise picture of how much the governor's favored private contract attorney has um, ha has made in public funds to represent the governor in these really controversial cases. So you mentioned the uh, the part of the state laws that allow for disclosure of settlements after a certain amount of time has passed, this 180-day period. Right. Can you give me a sense of of what I mean? I, so it's 180 days. I, I, I think I can do this math on my own. That means that if somebody is to make an IPRA request for this 180 days after whenever it's decided the clock should start ticking, that'll clearly be after Governor Martinez is out of the administration. 
That's exactly correct. And, and that's incredibly unfortunate and, in my view, pretty cynical as well. And there's also what I would call kind of a farcical or BS component to them making this argument under this risk management statute. If you read the statute, the plain language of the statute, what it talks about is settlement amounts. My public records request had nothing to do with settlement amounts. I just wanted to know how much Paul Kennedy got paid to represent the governor and her administration. The settlement amounts are what they are, and you know that's somebody else's bag to report on how much um, these cases ultimately were settled for. Uh, all I wanted to know was how much did this guy make in attorney's fees? Now, so, she pre- now she presumably would have had every incentive to wrap this up with you prior to the next administration, the, the next Democratic administration, coming in and then having the authority to maybe make an even more generous settlement and an even more dis- generous disclosure of, of that information? Or is that how it works? I think that's right. I think there was incentive to do it because of the clock, certainly, and the sort of landscape shift that we're seeing here in New Mexico, or will at least when the new administration um, takes office. It was incentivized um, that way, certainly, for them. Uh, And and I also think it was probably um, incentivized also by the fact that they just knew they had a loser, right? So if this thing ultimately goes to court, first of all, it's going to be under a new administration that's never going to let it go to court. And second of all, um, she you're right, she's out of office by the time I'm able to disclose the um, uh, intricate details of the settlement itself. This obviously is something that I feel I'm experiencing as well in terms of when you have a public records case in New Mexico that is a clear winner, um, based on you know a, any fair-minded interpretation of the IPRA statute, one of the games that the other side can play is to try to drag it out. Either drag it out to a point where the people who might be embarrassed by certain public records revelations are no longer in that position, or an even more cynical thing would be to drag it out to the point where an institution or an agency um, or whoever else that would have an interest in doing so can try to lobby the legislature to make another exemption in the IPRA statute or to curb the IPRA statute in some way. And so, you know, this is what I, I believe I'm experiencing, um, either one or both of those rationales for why the UNM Foundation has appealed my lawsuit um, that I won at the, uh, at the lower court level. The district court level. At the district right. court level. Um, because they recognize that, first of all, the uh, court system, especially the civil court docket in New Mexico, is so backed up that it's likely going to be a couple of years, perhaps, before my lawsuit is heard on appeal, um, at which point they'll continue to deny records. The UNM Foundation is going to continue to deny records requests um, until that appeal has been resolved and and then they would have an, a move to make to appeal that ruling if it's unfavorable to them to the uh to the state supreme court which could add a, a couple more years on it so you know whoever cares about hiding shit at the unm foundation um is likely no longer going to be working there or there's a decent chance they wouldn't be working there by the time that you know, the initial public records I sought that were the predicate for my lawsuit um, 
that case is resolved. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, anyone who doesn't believe that the people who are making these decisions about um, how to do what I like to describe as the drag and delay tactic aren't paying attention to the landscape. Um, you know, we just had an election, obviously. Um, earlier this month, we have five new judges going to the state court of appeals. Right, so that automatically is going to create some delay and some catch-up time, um, and all of that, all that sort of business, right? So that's something they knew when they made the decision to appeal um, uh, the the favorable ruling that you got. There's going to be big turnover on that court. They're already backed up. There's already a, a pretty substantial case backlog there. And yes, it's it's it it is it is a cynical move. There's no question about that. And then you see. Um, again, I can't get into the details of the haggling in my particular case, but you saw a, 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 a shift in tenor and tone and willingness once it became clear that they could invoke, um, whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent, this risk management statute so that nobody's actually going to know what the numbers are until the Martinez people are out of power. Yeah, that's there, there's no question that that's been a long-standing tactic um, among those who wish to continue to hide information from the public. And to almost add an, another element to this that makes it even more depressing is that the statute, you know, I, I sort of referenced this before, there's various ways in which you could start counting down the 180 days. And obviously the right. prerogative is always to pick the latest possible date. Um, and so there was a uh, there was a story that was written in the journal a couple of months back about a settlement that had been um, reached between the University of New Mexico and a former female student who had accused several football players of raping her. Right. Um, and she then in turn sued the university for of uh, federal Title IX violations um, in its handling of investigating her claims. Um, and uh, Jessica Dyer at the Journal ultimately got the story. I had made a request at a time after the settlement had already been wrapped up, 180 days after the settlement had been wrapped up in her particular um, civil case against the university. Um, ultimately, this went back to risk management, which decided that no, it was their interpretation that uh, the clock wouldn't start 180 days after her case wrapped up. It would start 180 days after a related case, a related but not the same case, had wrapped up and there was a final court order in that, which only, you know, which turned this into another, effectively another year before this settlement agreement could be reached. So there's, there's a whole, I mean, as much built-in monkey business as there is, there's even more monkey business that these that these uh, agencies and institutions can play to you know to kind of suppress information about settlements in this case um, to the to the last possible second. Sure, I mean, and look, there are statutory Mount Everests that we need to climb, summit, and plant our flag at the top of um, to to straighten some of this out, like for. For NM Fishbowl podcast listeners who are really interested in getting into the weeds of this, the, the statute site is New Mexico Statute 1579. That's the statute that they're pointing to. There's no language whatsoever in that statute about when the clock starts. So that gives 
um, bureaucratic and government actors lots of leeway and there's not a lot of good case law on when the, the clock starts either it gives them all kinds of leeway in terms of when they would like to start that clock and that's a huge problem and that's a that's a law that that the legislature needs to go back in and clarify its intent um, in terms of what it meant when it said 180 days that's something that is an easy fix all that takes is a lawmaker with a little bit of guts, a little bit of um, um, actual sort of transparency-mindedness to go in and add a, bit, a little bit of language to that statute that clarifies when the clock starts, right? And that's just that's one example of a number of um, you know minor and major uh, statutory hurdles that we need to get over um, in terms of uh, being able to open things up a little bit more here. So I want to play a little bit of Seven Degrees of Kevin Bacon with the uh, Paul Kennedy uh, version here, because in my last two years or so of, of blogging about the Lobos, Kennedy has popped up, um, as is the case often with these stories of New Mexico. The same kind of cast of characters seems to pop up um, in, in different stories. So Kennedy, in addition to being uh, Martinez's personal attorney, um, Ha, is now the criminal defense attorney for Cody Hopkins, the former Lobo men's basketball operations director, who has been uh, accused by the university and now is being uh, prosecuted for embezzling funds. And then, you'll perhaps find this interesting, I have been trying to uh, get records from another direct support organization for Lobo athletics called the UNM Lobo Club, I wrote a long story about their uh, about their history a, a couple weeks ago um, that was based in part on records that I had received. Uh, but they haven't re they have they, they're claiming that they don't owe me any any records uh, under IPRA, just like the foundation claimed so far unsuccessfully that they didn't owe me any records. Um, and we've continued to push the point, my attorney and I, uh, saying that we we expect these records and we believe that they're required to under IPRA. And so they have evidently now hired uh, an attorney, uh, and perhaps anticipating that I'm going to take this to court. Uh, a, a fellow, I don't know if you got, know this guy's name, Marshall Ray, who is a deputy cabinet secretary and general counsel in the, uh, in the Martinez administration. And if I if I'm got his uh, address, his mailing address um, from his signature line correctly, evidently works at least out of the office, out of the physical office of Paul Kennedy's law firm. Yeah, I, the, the, the Kevin Bacon analogy is incredibly apt here. There are a number of attorneys who office with Paul there. He, they're not all partners or associates of his law firm, but there are a number of attorneys who do office in his um, large and rather lovely structure over on 12th Street here in Albuquerque. Um, you know, this is something that I encountered as well in writing some stories about some monkey business going on with a, a, a DWI case involving yet another former Martinez cabinet official and the criminal defense lawyers in that case are also people who share office space with Paul Kennedy. So, yeah, it's a, it, it's a very small world here in Albuquerque, and the Martinez machine has defaulted when it needs outside legal help to a pretty small crew 
of attorneys who are essentially smaller moons orbiting around the planet that is Paul Kennedy. And this, to me, kind of speaks in some ways about just the character and the nature of power wielding in New Mexico, a rural state where there's not a lot of powerful people. And those who are powerful, again, just kind of play this game of musical chairs in the various venues in which they can wield or self-aggrandize or cash in that power. I mean, that was that has been my experience of covering the off-the-field issues for the Lobo Athletics Department is I feel oftentimes I'm quite literally covering New Mexico politics by covering Lobo sports because the power in the state, um, again, there's, there's, few, there's few venues, there's few individuals, um, and Lobo Sports is one of those is one of those venues where people can you know show up and and uh, and kind of cash in and have a, a kind of a big circle jerk about um, you know about who they are or, or what they control. Um, I would say the most satisfying story I think I've ever written was the story I wrote that I was titled "The Petty Politics of Lobo Land." Yeah, um, which was satisfying to me because no matter who you what whatever thread i pulled in that whatever kind of character i followed in that story he he or she invariably came back home to roost and it was to you know to be able to tie what was going on with craig neal's basketball program to what was going on with governor martinez's administration and to not even have to do any rhetorical gymnastics in order to uh to make that connection was just like both you know incredibly rewarding as a as a writer um easy as a writer and then also rather just galling to you know to to recognize what that says about about new mexico whatever it says about new mexico i think it says a lot about new mexico and i also don't think that the 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 susana martinez Jay McCleskey political machine invented that particular wheel. Um, I, the, 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 there was a, a different but similar in intent, similar in come from um, little orbit and and, uh, and and machine built up around Bill Richardson's administration. I, right. mean, I, I started as a New Mexico journalist long before Susana Martinez was elected governor here. I mean, the same thing existed um, when Marty Chavez was mayor of Albuquerque, the, the same thing existed when R.J. Barry was mayor of Albuquerque. I expect, <clears throat> frankly, <coughs> excuse me, Dan. Um, I expect, uh, frankly, that we're gonna we're gonna see Paul Kennedy's not gonna get all the government work under the Michelle Lujan Grisham administration. Somebody else is, though. Right. And it, it, it's gonna be uh, it, it, it 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 is insular. It's small. Um, there, there aren't. Let's start with this, right? And this is a this is a perhaps too kind reading of this. There aren't a huge number of law firms or attorneys who are capable of doing this kind of work in the state of New Mexico. We can start from there, right? And then um, uh, the the legal community and the political community, and this is not unique to New Mexico, are pretty um, uh, intricately entwined. But I. I, I certainly um, share your experience and have had it many times that regardless of what dive I was taking, and I, as you know, 
I mostly write about issues of criminal justice here in New Mexico. Um, no matter what, uh, where, what, what direction or what particular story or narrative through line I'm pursuing, yes, the same characters continue to pop up over and over and over again. And sometimes there's even some overlap. I mean, you think about one of the early scandals of the Martinez administration, um, the contract awarded to the Downs to run the racetrack and casino right in the middle of the most impoverished um, area in Albuquerque and crime-ridden area in Albuquerque, which, as an aside, I think is one of the most cynical things I've ever seen done in this state. Let's drop a room full of one-armed bandits into a part of a city that is plagued by all types of crime, poverty, um, uh, uh, storefront loan operations, liquor stores, and gun shops, and see how that works out. Anyway, one of the guys who'd been involved with that operation was a Richardson crony by the name of Paul Blanchard. He ended up um, jumping in with the Martinez folks to help get the, uh, that contract awarded to the Downs. So you see some of these characters float in and out regardless of which political power uh, party happens to be in power. But yes, that, 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 that is a long-standing New Mexico, I'm going to use the word tradition, um, uh, but, but really what it is is it's a long-standing sort of um, practice of New Mexico fuckery is what it is. Yeah, I mean, corruption is not unique to any particular locale, but some locales have a particularly unique flavor to their corruption born out of history or sociology or economics. And to me, this is the defining characteristic of New Mexico political corruption. Agreed. Is, is just how few, how few people there are and how few resources there are for people to kind of um wrangle over but the 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 smallness of that um has does not change the uh, the smallness of corruption people are no less corrupt just because there's not a lot of money um in in many ways quite the opposite um, no frankly it's far worse here's what i would say about that it it's a it's a small number of people who are carving up a uh, uh, for themselves a disproportionate slice of a small pie it, it makes it worse. I to I completely agree. I completely agree. And to the point about uh, how all these things kind of tie one to one another, Paul Blanchard um, was a uh, was a, a Lobo baseball booster, has been a Lobo baseball booster, and and Governor Richardson um, often was to be found in his uh, Lobo football suite in Blanchard's Lobo football suite. I'm shocked to find <laughs> gambling in this establishment, Mister. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. So let's put let's put somebody else on the chessboard because this has been as much a motivation for me to start writing again about New Mexico years after having left New Mexico as I think anything else. And that would be the the state's paper of record, the Albuquerque Journal. So in in 2013 I wrote a big magazine piece for National Journal about Susana Martinez and her relationship with with her political advisor Jay McCleskey and the influence that McCleskey had over her, over her government. Um, and one of the reasons why I pitched this story and did this story is because though it was obvious and people had talked about it and papers like the Santa Fe Reporter that you have written for um, had, had addressed it, the journal didn't touch this thing, this dynamic with a 10 foot pole. 
And so I started, you know, making some uh, early phone calls just around the obvious types of people. And one of the things I quickly learned from all my sources or many of my sources who would either become just background or off the record sources or even people who would who would uh, who I would name in the piece um, was that they never felt comfortable in the end to kind of take their goods to the Albuquerque Journal, that they never had the confidence that the journal was going to be the place, even if even if it was handed to them on the silver platter that would publish the kind of difficult explanatory or investigative piece um, that would really challenge an institution. Um, and when I returned to writing about New Mexico four years later to, to write about the Lobos, um, so again, different scale, different scale of journalism, different, different, uh, different focus, I, I, felt, I found very much the same thing. I, I, you know, I kind of geared myself to writing all the stories or at least tackling the things that I knew the journal wasn't, you know, I knew or I learned the journal had no interest in covering. And so for last year, that was largely the, uh, the investigation into Lobo football coach Bob Davey. I, um, I realized the, the ravishings of journalism across the country, and I certainly don't hold the Albuquerque Journal to the standards I would the New York Times. However, I also know there's plenty of smart, gritty reporters who, who continue to be on staff. I, I don't know that I can actually, you know, and maybe you have some insight having worked there and then competed with them um, for stories since, since you worked there. I'm trying to figure out what, what, is, what exactly defines the ego and the id of the journal's masthead. Um, I thought maybe you might want to weigh in on that a little bit. Happy to. Um, and, you know, I, I will say, um, first, just a little bit of prefacing, you mentioned that I worked there. I mean, I worked there for 10 years. And it was my first home uh, in professional journalism, right? It's the, it was the first news organization that I worked for after being a student reporter at the Daily Lobo at UNM. Um, I, my experience there is um, the literal definition of a mixed bag. I made friends and mentors there who continue to be people who I love and care about and stay in touch with and ask um, uh, for their advice in the kinds of journalism that I'm doing now to this day. Um, so, so there's that piece of it. But in terms of what you're talking about, my experience in reporting at the journal and watching others try to get under the hood in the way that National Journal piece did. And by the way, I was still on staff. I left the journal, I don't know what month in 2013 that National Journal piece published, um, but I left in September of that year. Right, so, so a few, months, a few on, months later, right. I left right. a few months after that. So I sort of watched the internal machinations of what the newspaper did in response to that story. Um, and essentially, the assignment that was handed down, rather than to try to build on the reporting you'd done or even match the reporting you'd done about the way the Martinez-McCleskey machine operated and all of those kinds of things, the assignment was, let's figure out who Libet's sources were and publish their names in the newspaper. Right. That was, that's what they did in response to that story you wrote. Meanwhile... 60%, 70% of the reporters in the newsroom devoured that story that you wrote and were, you know, out having 
uh, powwows in the parking lot with too many cigarettes and too much coffee about how great a job you've done. And we were so glad to see this whole thing stitched together. So it, my, my experience around that, my own work um, on police excessive use of force, police shooting cases, um, corruption in district attorney's offices and those kinds of things is the journal and I want to I want to parse the use of this word the journal is a very conservative newspaper um, and I mean that both in terms of its editorial page anybody who reads the journal's editorial page knows that politically it's a conservative newspaper um, one of my big complaints for the um, uh, period of time that I worked at the newspaper was that there wasn't enough of a firewall, that sort of traditional journalistic separation of church and state between the stance of the editorial staff and the news operation. There was too much bleed over. I don't know if anyone's ever told you this story before, but I'm happy to repeat it publicly for your podcast listeners. It was journal policy, and to the best of my knowledge, remains journal policy, that reporters were required to read editorials that were based on their stories that were going to be published in the newspaper. And the sort of fig leaf there was that we were going to be fact-checking these things, right? My job is to fact-check this. Really what they wanted was sort of your tacit approval of what they'd written editorially, based on a news story you'd written. That's a huge problem. That is a journalistic original sin. There must be that firewall. There must be that separation of church and state. The Wall Street Journal is a terrific example. Very, very politically conservative um, uh, editorial page, but real ambition in terms of getting under the hood among the journalists who are writing the, the stories for the news pages of, of, of that particular newspaper. That's something that didn't particularly exist at the journal. Furthermore, the paper very much lacked um, ambition from my perspective. I can remember pitching a number of stories um, and, and you know, I was sort of covering this, uh, let's just take the police shootings and police excessive force issue um, as an example, that, as a case study. I wrote, uh, God, scores of byline stories um, about that issue, about individual shootings, really digging into the histories of some of the officers who'd been involved, those kinds of things. And in the end, I I'm not saying that that's not a successful model. I call that particular model death by a thousand paper cuts. Um, and ultimately, not to blow my own horn, and I'm certainly not the only person, but I'm, my work at the journal was at least in part responsible for the big Justice Department investigation of the Albuquerque Police Department. And, and man, let's, let, let's also give a nod to some journalism history. Death by a thousand paper cuts is how Watergate worked, right? Woodward right. and Bernstein were not writing big Sunday takeouts right. uh, about what does it all mean. They were just following the story incrementally as it unfolded so there is some there is some benefit to that but it but but in particular in the more modern sort of media landscape um, explanatory reporting and those big stitched together things that help readers understand the stories that they've been reading on the front page Tuesday Wednesday Thursday and Friday 
those are really important in this day, day and age because there's so much media out there to consume. That is not the type of thing that the Albuquerque Journal is interested in doing. I had a million ideas that were killed, um, that, that died on the spike after I'd written them or died the moment that I pitched them as I was pursuing the APD story, for example. It's a, it's a very conservative newspaper in terms of its news judgment. And what I mean by that is that, generally speaking, they are far more interested in letting a mayor or governor come into the conference room in the newspaper, and I sat through these, where it's a handful of editors of the paper, um, a, a couple of reporters at the paper, and whatever, name them public official who want to float a new policy position or a new budget position uh, or all and all of that sort of thing. The editors ask all the questions in the room. The reporter is then assigned to write a, quote, news story about what these people came in and said, but the whole thing's embargoed. So I can remember instances where Mayor Barry would come in and, um, you know, talk about what was going on with the police department or this new idea that he had for the police department or whatever that was, and it was embargoed. I wasn't allowed to call anybody else and let them weigh in on what this new idea was. It was basically, I hate to say it this way, it was sort of publishing press releases. I don't really see that as the core mission of journalism. And, and again, the newspaper is, I, I think they operate, um, at least in terms of the masthead, a little scared and a little conservative. And I don't mean conservative necessarily in the political context. They're just they're just scared. And I mean, I've certainly got um, my ideas about the origin story of all of that. If people want to go research the Marchiando lawsuit, I think things changed after that. There was a time when the journal was a very aggressive sort of muckraking newspaper. This was all before my time. I mean, hell. They bought a racehorse one time and did an undercover series of stories to expose doping in New Mexico horse racing. That's just not the kind of thing you see the Albuquerque Journal do anymore and haven't for quite some time. So that's kind of my, that's my um, you know, thumbnail sketch of what I think is going on in terms of why we didn't see that National Journal piece that you wrote in the pages of the Albuquerque Journal. At that time, they had the horses, man. Absolutely. Colleen Heald and Tom Cole could have done that story. Absolutely, and that and that and that's absolutely the case. There, there, I, I'm not a unique talent. This was not a story that, you know, only, one that only, that only I could get or that a national publication could get. Many of my sources told me either that they had gone to the journal initially and just felt the, the, the resistance to even going down the rabbit sure. hole, or sure. um, that they that the reputation of the journal, and this is really true. I mean, the reputation of the journal is not a place for whistleblowers to go to. If you are somebody who really wants to blow the whistle, and you end up feeding some or leaking something to the journal, there's a better than fifty percent chance it's going to be sat on, or the journal's going to basically wait for the uh the subject of that whistleblowing the institution the higher up the official to 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 dictate the way that the story is is going to co come out in the end so yeah, one other thing i'd like to add um in, in terms of this discussion sort of about the journal 
And I think it's important for people to understand when we say the masthead, I don't want to, you know, trot out a, a massive list of names or anything else, but anyone who's taken the time to listen to this conversation on your podcast knows the name Kent Walls. Kent was the editor-in-chief of the newspaper for a number of years. He has since stepped back a little bit, um, and I think they're calling him a senior editor these days. Occasionally, um, you'll see a Sunday front-page story um, that the journal considers a profile, right? And you and I as journalists know that if you're writing a profile about somebody, the least important person to interview for the profile is the person it's right. about. It, it, they're, they're, they're right. The they're the equivalent of the parade magazine profiles. Exactly, right? It's, it's simply a Q&A with the subject of the story. So anyway, that's what he's doing these days. And this is what I'll say about Kent, who is also, by the way, a co-founder of the New Mexico Foundation of, uh, uh, for Open Government. Um, Kent and, and, and Fogg and, and the journal for many, many years were, um, and, and again, back when there was some ambition and all of that, they were a pushback machine against the old Democratic Party Patron Network that ran the state of New Mexico. Lots of corruption in there. I could name you a hundred names. People who went to prison. Manny Aragon, for example. So it really developed as a pushback mechanism against that. And in those days, the newspaper was functioning as newspapers are supposed to, as the fourth estate, as the watchdog on power, those types of things. And during that period of time, and again, these are things I witnessed personally, Kent made some friends, right? Like on the other side of the political spectrum who were also trying to push back against what admittedly, in many cases, was a very corrupt system. And when his friends began to gain power, that's when um, the newspaper sort of changed into more of a what we're going to do is help them spread the word of their agenda and the way they'd like to change things. That said, people often confuse, people often have this idea about the journal that it's just a Republican boosting newspaper. That is not true. It is, it, it, it is more, um, it, 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 it's, it's true more often than it's not, but what's really at the root of that is that the masthead, and Kent in particular, became part of the power structure, rather than remaining apart from it. People will remember the great scene in Spotlight, when the Marty Baron character goes to see Cardinal Law, and Cardinal Law tells him, I think it's great, there's this symbiotic relationship between the church and the press, and that's when things are great, and Marty Baron looks at him and says, you know, respectfully, sir, I think it works better when we're over here and you're over there. That's the thing that broke down in my experience and in my opinion um, about the Albuquerque Journal. It became too close to power. And so to that point, I mean, why ultimately was it left up to me in Chicago to file an IPRA lawsuit against the University of New Mexico Foundation? Why wasn't this something that the journal did? Certainly. I could only imagine the number of reporters over time who covered either higher education or Lobo sports who ran into the same obstructionism that I ran into by UNM basically hiding all their interesting documents and all their interesting deals overall out at the UNM Foundation. Well, one of the reasons is that the 
publisher, the current publisher, Mr. Lang, the journal's current publisher, is a member of the board of the UNM Foundation, which, okay, he's not the only newspaper publisher who, who uh, holds a board at, a, at an organization that is probably in conflict of interest with, the, uh, with what his paper covers, but you got to at some point pick what your to, to go back to one of your originating theses of, of this conversation you got to pick your priorities you know if, if what you want to be is among the powerful then you're then you're going to compromise the ability of your newspaper to to do the best journalism it can and so yeah I mean that you know this has been this kind of interesting dance that the journal has done with my with my lawsuits where they've sort of rah-rahed them on their editorial page and I've appreciated it. They've given it, they've given uh, my pursuit against the uh, the foundation a lot of ink and a lot of encouragement, um, frankly, both on the, on the editorial page and in the paper itself. Um, but, you know, at the same time, they didn't file this lawsuit and there's probably a pretty good reason why, why they, why they left it to somebody else. And, there's not a lot of somebody else's. There's not a lot of Jeff Proctor's. There's not a lot of New Mexico in depth. There's not a lot of Santa Fe reporters. I mean, really, it's the journal. The journal is, sets the agenda in New Mexico in a way that few newspapers do in their state. Um, and so if the journal is not going to do something, uh, then it often means that that something is not going to get done. Um, or if it gets done, it's by uh, by the, you know by the grace of of, of either a, a journalist with a bug up his ass or or you know just the, the luck of the draw. Um, and yeah, it's, and I, it's a you shame. You make a really good point there in, in terms of attempting to answer the 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 why portion of your question. I I, I can't speak explicitly to that. I've been gone from the newspaper now for five years. Um, which that's a strange thing it sounds strange coming out of my mouth that I've been gone now from the journal for five years here is what I I think I can say with some confidence it doesn't have anything to do with the reporters whose beats um, are to cover the, the, the same sorts of things that you're covering right um, I think you make a, a, a pretty obvious um, and, and likely scenario in the connection of dots that you're making um, but look, that, that's not that's not the only model. Okay, fine. Bill Wang sits on the board of the UNM Foundation. Um, fine, that's terrific. Uh, Katie Graham was very, very close friends with Bob McNamara. You know what she did? Right. She published the Pentagon Papers anyway. That's right. Knowing she was going to have to go and sit in a, at a cocktail party with that guy and have him stare daggers through her skull the entire time they were in the same room together. So it's, it's, it, it's not that these things by design have to be the way they are. They are individual choices that get made by living, breathing human beings. And look, I don't know uh, Bill particularly well. I knew his brother uh, a little better who was publisher um, before Bill was, before he died, Tom Lang. Um, and, he, you know, Tom was uh, a politically conservative guy and all that kind of thing. But he, he also was, he was, he was interested in newspapering. He liked fucking with people. Um, and, 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 you know, yes, there was more money. I started at the journal at the sort of end of the golden age when that, that newspaper, like so many others around the country, 
were um, licenses to print money, and we were swimming in it. The guy flew me on his own airplane to New Orleans the day it stopped raining after Katrina, and I lived in a car at the top of Canal Street with a journal photographer for five days and covered the aftermath of that hurricane. So there was ambition, and he liked, Tom liked that kind of stuff. I don't know Bill very well. Um, He came from a different end of the publishing world, so I, I can't speak to what's in his heart or in his head or um, wh- what his come from is. But those are individual choices that get made, right? I, do the, did the reporters, Jessica and Jeff and whoever else was involved in, 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 um, in some of this coverage, were they uh, pissed off and upset and frustrated with the opacity and the the – um, lack of response that they were getting as they were trying to pursue some of these stories, I guarantee you that they were. So somewhere along the line, the decisions got made above their pay grade that things were going to go kind of a different way, and it was going to be up to Libet to file this lawsuit against the UNM Foundation. And I think some of the editorials and the news coverage of the work that you've done um, have been good as well, and those are encouraging signs to me um, and and the, the the last thing I'd like to say about about the journal is it, it is much of a a sort of a vocal uh, and public uh, critic um, and 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 sometimes sort of poo-pooer of the institution. I really do love that newspaper. I really, 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 really do. It was my first home as a journalist. I made lasting relationships there. I learned things there because of the way the editorial structure was set up. I became a better reporter because my stories had to meet impossible bars because of the ideological makeup of some of the people at the top who were editing these stories. They, I became a much more thorough and hardened reporter as a result of having worked there. Moreover, I am one of those people who lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico by choice. I wasn't born here. I've lived here for 17 years. I've chosen to make this place my home. I want it to do better on any number of the measuring sticks that we do so poorly in. And I think a huge part of making that so would be for the journal to take a little more of an adversarial um, or critical uh, look at the way it presents um, the newspaper to its readers every day. I'm a huge cheerleader, although I've got my own (laughs) sort of prickly way of doing that um, of the Albuquerque Journal. I want that to be a badass newspaper. And come on, man, like we talked about earlier, it's New Mexico. There is no more target-rich environment yes. on the planet Earth yes. to go and do the thing. And I, and, and I see it happen sometimes. And I see thoughtful, compassionate reporting um, in the paper. It, it, it does happen. I just saw a story about um, the way the public education department um, is screwing kids with disabilities in terms of getting them the public education that they're guaranteed um, to get. A, 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 a young reporter at the newspaper named Shelby Perea wrote that story. It was a great story. It was readable. Um, it was, uh, I was able to relate to it. It made me feel something, and it made me understand 
a topic that I don't understand very well because it's not something that I cover. There's great work being done there all the time. Dan McKay and Dan Boyd do a great job of covering the New Mexico legislature. I don't, I don't want to leave a bunch of names out, but there are a bunch of people there who really are trying to do the thing. But in terms of looking at the Daily Report in its totality, um, I, I just don't think that there's the ambition or the thoughtfulness or the um, you, you know real desire uh, to, to sort of be that that adversarial um, bulwark against fuckery in the state. And I, having kind of gone the reverse of you, I, I was born in New Mexico, but I'm choosing to live my life elsewhere but still remain very interested obviously in in the affairs of the state i i share the same sentiment I, you know the the journal frustrates me in terms of of its execution at the at the at the top um but it would be better for everybody i would have enjoyed blogging about the lobos more the last two years if the journal um you know in some cases they they just dominated me in stories but if they were an, were sort of equally ambitious on pursuing some of these other stories or if the reporters would be allowed to pursue some of these stories with equal ambition it would have made everything better um and it will well, make I, things better I, I, I gotta drop one more thing in there and i know i'd already said the last thing i wanted to say about the journal that and i don't think this is totally unique to that newspaper i think that a lot of older um, so-called and self-styled newspapers of record tend to have um, this sort of ethos. There's an ethos at the journal that if we didn't think of this first, if this wasn't an idea that whose God particle, whose genesis came from 7777 Jefferson Northeast, it's not a story. That's right. That's so that's another... That's another thing that's been frustrating to me. I mean, I think in the last handful of years since I left the paper and went on to work at KRQE and then New Mexico in depth in the Santa Fe Reporter, there have been a ton of stories that I've written that I've thought like, man, they got to match that. Or they need to get past where I got and just crickets. Well, I, my, so, I, so I, this is sort of institutional right. hubris. That's right. I, I started my, I started journalism as an intern at the Albuquerque Tribune, the now defunct Albuquerque Tribune. And that was, you know, sort of our, our collective perspective was we were the paper that wrote stories that we thought we had beaten the journal, um, on. Um, and I think by any, any kind of uh, general assessment on those particular stories, you would think, oh, the smaller newspaper got one over on the bigger one. Uh, and the journal's response was invariably not to touch it, not to cover yeah, it, to sort of ignore it, to ignore it away. Um, and, and again, you know, there is certainly a competitiveness to the industry, no doubt, um, that is sort of baked into the cake from the, from the very beginning. But there's, there's actually a lot of graciousness in our industry as well up to the point of how you know we routinely in journalism acknowledge the reporting of of even our competitors in our stories uh, the new york times if they get us you know obviously the new york times and the washington post are in are in strong competition on the uh, on the white house beat if you read a new york times story that followed the washington post without fail 
it'll mention first with reported in exactly the within the yeah. first five paragraphs. I mean yeah. that that is that is the nature of our industry, um, and it's important. I mean we we realize we're all building blocks off blocks that had already been put there originally, um, mm -hmm. and so you know. But yes, needless to say. All right, and, and, and yeah, I mean so part of that too is the, that that. That also involves a, a level, and I won't get too far in the weeds on this, that also involves the various layers of the so-called masthead or the hierarchy at the journal. When I started at the journal, the Tribune was still a thriving newspaper um, and had great reporters and did great stories, and Charlie Moore was the city editor. And I remember, because of course the Trib was an afternoon paper, and we shared a building. And so when the Trib came off the presses, they dump a few dozen of them right into the journal newsroom and they were still warm. I can still feel it in my hands, <laughs> right? Um, and I, I can, more than once, I remember Charlie, um, who was a, you know, very much the sort of old mold city editor, the hard bitten, hard boiled city editor. He'd grab the trib, he'd see a story on the cover and I would get yelled at. I sat a fair ways across the newsroom from him, and I mean, he'd always start it the same way. Proctor, over <laughs> here, right now. And I'd walk over to his desk. By now I know what the problem is because I've seen Kate Nash's story on the cover of the Tribune. Um, and, and why didn't you have this? Uh, 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 listen, I don't wanna hear you mumble anymore. What needs to happen by three-star deadline, which was, is the state edition, six o'clock, I need for you to not just match this, but get me past it. And that's, so that, that, that's that great. That existed. That yeah. did exist. It, uh, it, it, and, and then, you know, it would get softened as it went up the line from there. It happened over and over and over again. But there were and remain people in that newsroom who um, don't like getting beaten on stories. No doubt, no doubt. Tell me what you're working on these days. <laughs> um, well, I, I'm working on all kinds of stuff. I, I, but people who are familiar with my work, whether it be at, at, at the Reporter or at New Mexico In Depth, know that I have focused quite a bit in the last two years. Not exclusively, but um, uh, quite a bit. I've focused on uh, federal law enforcement and the federal court system. Here in New Mexico, I've written now a couple of dozen uh, byline stories about this big, really controversial law enforcement operation that was launched in 2016 by the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, where they rounded up 103 people, had a big celebratory spiking of the football press conference, and said that they'd cleaned up the mean streets um, of our crime-plagued city as a result of having done this. Well, I've written a number of uh, stories about that operation now that exposed um, some pretty hardcore racial disparities among those arrested, and beyond that, really challenged the way that law enforcement operation was designed, who carried it out, what they've done in other places around the country, and what the ramifications are. It's really been a, a kind of a, I don't want to use the word meditation. It, it's really been a series of stories um, that I hope reached people who thought that the so-called war on drugs was over um, because that's really what it turned out to be. 
Um, and in the course of doing that reporting, I've gotten to tell some of what I think are um, the most important and impactful and meaningful stories of my whole career that have resulted in um, much shorter prison terms, um, in some cases, uh, looming outright dismissals of charges based on racial profiling claims and that kind of thing. So that's been really satisfying. I, I did some federal court reporting at the Journal and um, at KRQE before I came to work for New Mexico in depth and the reporter, but I've really had occasion now to focus on the federal system um, in the last couple of years in a way that I really didn't have a chance to do before. And it's a very, very different animal. Um, and I know that a lot of your listeners and readers um, like your work and are fans of yours because of your, um, what is what is word, what is word, vociferous advocacy for open government and transparency. That's a kind um, way so of putting it, yeah. A, a kind way of putting it. Dan, you're an asshole. And, there you go. Uh, and so in any case, um, a, a couple of the stories that sprung from the reporting on the ATF um, uh, series are, are some of the stories that I'm, I'm very most proud of uh, that I've that I've ever written because I, I like you this is sort of the basis of our friendship right this is sort of love of open government and transparency I was able to sort of uncover this this really crazy practice of the way documents um, are sealed in federal court in New Mexico um, and so for for lay folks a sealed document in a court case whether it be civil or criminal um, is a document that the public doesn't get to see, but that the parties and the judge does get to see. The, uh, the, the, the rules for the federal court system in New Mexico and pretty much everywhere else, this is a, a, a well-established doctrine, especially in criminal law, is that if something is going to be sealed and kept from the public, which cuts against um, the notion that the public should have the most possible access to the functions of its government, the way it's supposed to work is one of the parties, whether it be the prosecutor or the defense lawyer, um, goes to the judge in writing and says, I'm going to file this document or that document, or uh, I'm, I, want, I want to have this hearing or that hearing, and I want it sealed. I want it kept from the public, and here is the specific enumerated reason that I would like for that to happen. And then the judge decides whether that, the, the, that particular party has met the threshold to um, uh, countervail the public interest in that particular case. Uh, anyway, I came to discover that the practice in New Mexico for a long time has been that lawyers, not judges, decide what gets to be sealed. In other words, they file a document they check a box when they electronically file these documents through the federal court filing system that says sealed. And now it's just gone, like a fart in the wind. So when I go to that electronic storehouse of federal court records and look at a particular case, the documents appear in order. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and on down the line. The first document in a criminal case will typically be the indictment. What I began to notice was that in these criminal cases I was looking at in the ATF operation, 
you'd look at the numbers and it would go 1, 2, 3, 6, 9, 10, 11, 12, 15, 16, 19, 20, 22. Missing document numbers. And so I just started poking around and talking to my sources in the legal community and asking like, man, what's up with these missing document numbers in these criminal cases in federal court? And what people told me over and over and over again was, well, there could be a number of reasons for that, but in the overwhelming majority of cases, those are sealed records. And so the problem that raises is, I, as a, 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 a citizen, and in particular as a journalist, if I believe that a document has been improperly sealed, that, that, that um, something has been filed under seal that didn't meet the really high threshold of keeping something from the public, I don't even know it exists. So I can't go challenge this um, uh, practice that went on to seal a particular record. I'm just left in the dark totally and completely and, you know, up the proverbial creek with nothing to paddle with but, you know, like a, a crusty leaf from a magnolia tree. So it, it's, it, it, it became this, we spent a long, long time and talked to a lot, a lot of people and examined some districts um, around the country that have um, uh, other kinds of practices in place and really the direction that reporting is starting to head is that New Mexico's system, and like so many other things in New Mexico, to really bring the conversation full circle, I can't tell you how many times I've run into this in my time as a journalist here. You go and you pitch a story like this to an editor, and the editor's like, yeah, I know that goes on. Everybody knows that goes on. That's just the way it gets done. And I'm lucky enough now to have editors who don't have that kind of an ethos, who are like, wait a minute. Um, first of all, big-time constitutional problems. The Sixth Amendment allows for public trials. That means that the public has access to the way the courts work to make sure that people aren't being un unfairly treated by the government. Next, they're violating their own rules. I don't care if it's been going on for 20 years. You're damn right it's a story. I'd like to see a draft in three weeks, and I hope you haven't shaved during that period of time <laughs> or slept very much. So that's the, the sort of big transparency thing that I'm on right now. And as I'm sure you can tell by the tone of my voice, I'm pretty animated and excited about that. And I'm really hoping that at some point this sparks a larger discussion in the New Mexico legal community because it's, it's prosecutors and defense attorneys alike who have been doing this um, for many, many years. And it's a very widespread practice, the best I've been able to uncover it so far. And ultimately what I hope um, happens here is that, okay, fine, you want to seal a document in a federal court case, there needs to be publicly viewable a motion filed by one of the parties to seal, and then an order from the judge granting that motion or not. So that if someone like me sees that and thinks, huh, I don't think you met the bar, I can walk into court and challenge that. I think it's a big, big, big deal, particularly in criminal cases at the federal level, because someone's freedom is on the line. And as we know, in federal court, in criminal cases, the sentences are longer. You do 85% of the time, no matter how good a boy or girl you were when you were locked up, probably in a private prison. So there's a big, big interest in the public being able to see how the sausage gets made. And I'm I'm super excited to keep scratching at that. 
Well, I I must say, for the record, you are you are a treasure. You are a treasure, good sir. I um I, I I've been I've been advised by other people to keep my podcasts shorter, but I I could go on for another two hours. In fact, you and I should just start a weekly podcast in which we psychoanalyze the journal. I could give that I could give that a six month run. I think. I think you probably could too, and we'd get a good nine or ten listeners. That's that that's we do we do it for the love. Jeff, I, I, I greatly appreciate your time. I wish you luck on your on your reporting endeavors. And when I make my way back to New Mexico, likely to file to fight another public records lawsuit, um, we'll we'll go grab we'll go grab a beer. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for the work that you've done. Um, and and thanks for entertaining these kind of long, occasionally wonky conversations. I think the podcast. Um, uh, infant as it may be has been really cool so far and I'm really 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 um, glad and 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 sort of humbled that you asked me to come on and talk about some of this stuff of so course you. it goes my pleasure all right Jeff will you take care you do too and so there you have it I would again like to thank my guest, Jeff Proctor. You can find an accompanying article to this podcast and all my Lobo-related content at nmfishbowl.com. If you would like to send me a question or comment, please email editor at nmfishbowl.com. And if you would like to engage in your own bit of fuckery, you can tweet me at nmfishbowl.com, all one word. The NM Fishbowl podcast is available for downloading on iTunes. If you head over there, please like and subscribe. As I mentioned in the previous episode, this podcast will be curtailing by year's end, so I can put my attention in launching a yet unnamed national college sports podcast sometime in early 2019. But I'm going to try my best to finish this year strong as possible with upcoming guests that include Sports Illustrated's college football reporter Ross Dellinger, who is going to try to help me understand a little more about UNM Athletic Director Eddie Nunez's time at LSU, which Dellinger previously covered for the Advocate newspaper in Baton Rouge. I'm also slated to have on KRQE investigative journalist Larry Barker. The music you hear in the background comes from the Freak Fandango Orchestra's Requiem for a Fish. As always, I appreciate you lending me your ears. And until next time, I'm Daniel Libet.